you have your Bibles this morning, we'd ask you to turn to James chapter 4. We're in a series called Faith That Lives. We're in a mini-series called Becoming a Peacemaker. This is so important to Christian living and to redemptive community that we've slowed down a little bit. I know many of you just absolutely love the slower I go, the better. We're slowing it down a little bit because we need to really make sure that we get and we understand and we utilize, we implement, we live out what the Word of God is saying. And if we gloss over the first part of chapter 4, friends, listen, I'm just going to tell you plain and simply, you cannot ever learn to become a peacemaker. If you do not get, and if I do not get and implement in my life, in our lives, the truths that are encapsulated in the first several verses of chapter 4, we will not be peacemakers. So we've slowed down a little bit to try to grab it, to try to get hold of it. And there are some people who view conflict resolution similar to an ad in the paper. Here's what that ad said. It said, for sale, parachute, only used once, never opened, small stain. Yeah, I tried to resolve conflict once and it didn't work. I tried the biblical way to do it and I'm the one that got ran over. So I just deal with conflict when it happens. We you know what, friends? God wants his people, you and I, to be peacemakers. But often, if we would just be honest, and I think we are a pretty fairly honest, at least on some level, congregation, we're not very good at peacemaking. We argue, we quarrel, we fight, and our relationships get strained, they get severed. Why does this happen? Well, James chapter 4, verse 1, we looked at it last week. It said, what causes fights and quarrels among you, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So do you remember from last week that the word for desires that James used here gives us the word hedonism? Hedonism, friends, simply is the belief that the highest goal in life is the attainment of pleasure. That's what hedonism is. This is what James is talking about. The pursuit of pleasure, the fulfillment of our desires, they war within us and within our churches, and they result in fighting, and they result in quarreling. Now, no hands, but how many of you have right now conflict in your families? How many of you have conflict in a relationship at work or in your neighborhood or even in our church or with a loved one? You see, friends, listen, James is giving you and I, no matter whether you like to hear this or not, and believe me, I don't really like to hear this, but it's true and it pins us down. The problem is the desires that battle within us. The source of conflict is this desire it's not the blood pumping organ of the heart physically but the but the spiritual center of our beings called the heart now understanding this truth and we're just reviewing from last week understanding this truth is the first step toward learning to become a peacemaker by the way how many of you and, and to this one raise your hands if you would how many of you thought of what you learned last week during this past week when a conflict potentially broke out anybody think about it I'm quitting. 
Got it stopped. Oh, it was a good week. Okay. Maybe you started to quarrel. Maybe you started to argue or even had a conflict, but you began to look deeper within your heart toward the desire that was raging. Now, friends, listen, I'm not at all surprised at the amount of hands going up. And you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to say this. And I encounter this repeatedly in counseling. If your hand did not go up more than likely, the result is that you're blind to your heart. Pastor Tim, that's not very kind to say. I could take you through dozens and dozens and dozens of scripture, including Jeremiah 17, 9, which says that our hearts are deceptive and wicked. You know what that word deceptive in the Hebrew means? It means many tracked, which means this. If you walk out your driveway in the winter, there's a fresh snow that fell overnight and you see your spouse's car that left earlier for work, and you walk, and you can follow those tracks until they get to an intersection where car after car is interlaced over that, and you'll lose the set of tracks that belong to your spouse. That's what that word means. You can see your heart for a little bit, but the deeper you go, the darker it gets, and eventually you're going to lose sight of the truth. Friends, you and I cannot see our own hearts, not at the depths. That's why Proverbs 20 says that wise friends go down deep in the heart and bring up for us to see what is there. James is teaching us how to become peacemakers. He's teaching us how to become skilled at walking through conflict toward peace. This was sorely needed in the first century because of the divisions in the early church. And friends, it's needed now. We saw the source of conflict last week. This morning, we're going to look at the course that conflict follows unless grace intervenes. This is part two, the course of conflict. Here it is, James chapter four. Would you read it with me? And let's really dive into this and learn what we can learn about how to become a peacemaker. Verse two, you want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What do we learn from here? Four things I think we can learn at least from these two verses. Number one, conflict is all about not getting what I want. Now, instead of squirming away from this, which is what we're prone to doing, and instead of thinking, boy, I hope my husband or I hope my children or I hope my wife are really listening this morning, let's apply this to our own hearts. Conflict begins, James says, when we don't get what we want. You want something, the the holy inspired word says, but don't get it. Now, to want something, that word want means to set your heart upon it, to long for it. And at this point, friends, listen, it could be good or bad. It's neutral. That word in the Greek is a neutral word. It doesn't mean good or bad. Or it can mean good or it can mean bad. A lot of our desires, they start out as pure, godly, holy desires. Ladies, how many of you desire your husband's to love you and to cherish you. But what happens to that desire when that's not met? And what happens in your heart when that desire is not met? That's where it begins to separate whether this is a good want, a good desire, a holy desire, or a bad one. And the word something, James says, you want something. The word something here does not always mean 
something physical. A better translation, in fact, of this sentence leaves out that word something, and it says you desire and you do not have. That's what the English Standard Version, that's how it translates it. So it's not always a desire for physical things. We have a desire, but that which we desire, we cannot, the Bible says, have. We cannot hold it. We cannot possess it. We cannot contain it. We cannot keep it ours. Now, friends, we're starting out. This is the course that conflict follows. The James says that if you're in a conflict or if you're in a quarrel, you're in a battle, you're in a war, then it began with having a desire that became something you wanted to possess. This is the fundamental nature of conflict. It's not simply that we cannot get what we desire, but we cannot possess it on a continuing basis. I want something, now friends listen, I want something, or you want something, but something is an obstacle to me being able to possess it, and depending on whether the desire is a godly or an ungodly one, conflict breaks out. Now listen, I'm not telling you anything deep here. I'm just telling you the beginning, the foundation, the platform that James gives us for why do we have conflict? Well, it begins at the level of desire. We want to hold and possess something, tangible or intangible, but there's an obstacle that materializes. You come on Friday after a stressful week of work. You come home. You walk in that door and you desire a weekend of relaxation. You desire a weekend of quietness, getting done what you've been putting off and And you're reminded when walking through the door that there's an all-day tournament that one of your children has on Saturday. There's a congregational meeting after church on Sunday. See, I'm really modern and up to current times here. And oh, in case you forgot, that evening, Friday evening, you promised to go Christmas shopping. What's the response in your heart? You had a longing, you had a desire for a weekend where you can lay back, where you can recover from the week, where you can de-stress, and all of a sudden, all these demands are coming on you, and you cannot get what your heart wants. You're gladly serving in the church. You're a little hurt, though, that no one seems to recognize all the work that you put into ministry, and someone comes up to you with a criticism and their opinion of what you should do. Or maybe you want to go out to a party on Saturday night, but then one of your parents starts asking questions of who's going to be there and what you're going to be doing, and they're growing increasingly uncomfortable. All of these, and you could go on to literally thousands of scenarios, all of these start with a desire, something that you want, something that you long for to possess, and then an obstacle materializes, and that that is what begins to separate whether it's a godly desire or an ungodly one. How about this one? You're barely making your ends meet each month when your wife tells you that the car is starting to make that weird noise. All of these reveal a desire in your heart. And all of them are potential conflicts, obstacles. And how we respond to an obstacle to our desire determines whether we war and battle or in peace. Peacemakers at least understand this. Letter B. Conflict is all about warfare. Look what James says. We're just following the course of conflict that James has so clearly laid out. Conflict is all about warfare. He says you kill 
and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Now listen, if you're like me, for years I've read this, and for years I've sort of glossed over, okay, James is being hyperbolic. He's just sort of exaggerating to make a point, and I gloss over the significance of you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want, you quarrel and fight. See, kill, in this context, it can include murder. Murder is hatred. Extremely destructive behavior, friends, even suicide. This is what that word kill can encompass. David, who committed deceit and murder in order to cover up his sin with Bathsheba, models this. Absalom, his son, was willing to kill his father in order to be a king. He wanted to be king. And his father, who was the king, was his obstacle, so he was willing to kill because he coveted the position. You understand? This is what the process, the course of conflict is about. How about Ahithophel in the Old Testament who hated King David? He was related to Saul. Ahithophel went out and he hung himself when he no longer was the most influential of Absalom's counselors. Ahithophel had a heart, he had a desire that ran after influence and control over Absalom. And when Absalom chose the advice of other people rather than him, he said, I don't want to live anymore. And he went and killed himself. In the spring of 1931, one of the most notorious criminals of that day was captured. He was known as Two-Gun Crowley. And he had brutally murdered a great many people, including at least one policeman. It is said that when he finally was captured in his girlfriend's apartment after a gun battle, the police found a blood-spattered note on him that read this. Under my coat is a weary heart, but a kind one. One that would do nobody any harm. This man was deceived. He didn't even see his own heart. He was willing to kill because he coveted. He could not get what he wanted, so he removed the obstacle. Jesus taught this in Matthew 5. Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But listen, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. How many of you have been angry with your brother? Don't take that too literally. Not just your flesh and blood, brother or sister. How many have been angry with a fellow Christian? How many have been angry with a neighbor? You know what Jesus says? The anger that is used here in the Greek, it's a murderous and a selfish anger. It's an anger against someone, whoever that might be, because he has done something against us. It's a brooding, simmering anger that continues to be nurtured and not allowed to die. Friends, it's a grudge holding, smoldering bitterness that refuses to forgive. So let's bring it down to the brass tacks. How many of you are resentful towards somebody that's hurt you in the past and you have yet not forgiven them? That's the anger that Jesus is talking about. That's murder in the law. 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. It's serious stuff. We have a wood stove at home, and it can look like it's gone out, but when you open the door on the side, it contains a bed of smoldering coals. You see, murderous anger rejects any attempts at reconciliation. This is what it does. It kills, and it covets. 
James says you kill and covet. What's that word covet mean? It means to have a warmth. It means to burn with zeal or passion. It means to boil with envy. Friends, listen, it's from this word that we get the word zealot. A zealot is a fanatical Jewish patriot who took up arms to overthrow the Romans. So when we kill and covet, we're burning with desire. We're burning with envy because we cannot get what we want. So we're willing to do whatever it takes to remove the obstacle. How do we do that in the church? We're pretty creative. The life application commentary, I adapted a chart from them. Look at this chart. What are the weapons and the strategies used in church fights and quarrels? How about those missiles, those, you know, attacking others from safe positions? I don't want to be mean, but dot, dot, dot. That's a missile. Guerrilla tactics, ambushing the unsuspecting, holding grudges, waiting for them to make a mistake so that you can pounce and you can criticize and you can judge and you can show them, I knew you were going to do that. All the while I knew about it, I'm just waiting to see it happen. You get those snipers in churches who have that well-aimed criticism from a superior position. That's called judging. Whenever you and I judge anybody, we're going to look at this in a few weeks, you have elevated yourself up on the throne and everybody else is below you demanded to serve the way that you want to. Terrorism. No one's immune from being hurt in order to attain my goals. It's me-centeredness. Whatever has to happen, has to happen. The goal that I have is the greater good. You have those minds that ensure that others are going to fail. You know, the, the setups, husbands and wives, we do this a lot. Do it with our children. It's born out of jealousy and envy. How about the espionage, those schemes to get potentially damaging information in order to undermine others? You love your ears prick up. Your antenna goes up as soon as you find out some dirt on somebody in the church. They're involved in that sin? I knew they were. I always knew it. Propaganda where we use gossip to spread damaging information about others that gets others on your side. The Cold War where we freeze out an opponent by withdrawing or refusing to talk to him or her. How about the nuclear attack? Being willing to even sacrifice the church if the goals of my group are not met. Friends, this is happening all over our world. This is what James is pointing out, that if the desires for something are great enough and someone is an obstacle to us obtaining it, then we are capable and sometimes willing, unless grace intervenes, to do whatever it takes to get it. What's the battlefield's location? It's the heart. And the results, we quarrel and we fight. Look at the third one. Conflict is all about my idols. Conflict is all about my idols. Look at the third part of verse 2. You do not have, James says, because you do not, Ask God. Now, friends, listen, I know idols, the word idol or idolatry seems to be an antiquated word, but I think it's a word that captures well the drift that we have away from God when we have these desires. Ezekiel 14, 3 says, The Son of Man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Today's idols for America don't always sit on a shelf 
A lot of times they're idols of the heart. In the New Testament, the, the Old Testament word for idols is the New Testament word for desires. How does idolatry work? Let me explain it to you. The God, the false God that tripped the Israelites up more than any other was called Baal. Here's what Baal's reputation was. Baal was the weather and the fertility God. Baal's stronghold was Mount Carmel, the place where Elijah had that great confrontation with him. Baal was the God of Jezebel's father, the king of Sidon. And so when Jezebel married King Ahab of Israel, she brought into Israel Baal and Ashtoreth, her personal goddess. So here's Baal, the weather fertility god. And friends, listen how ironic this is. The two greatest fears of Israel, because they were an agricultural society, if their crops didn't grow, they didn't eat. And in Elisha's time, we saw what happened where they didn't eat. One woman says, we'll take my baby, we'll boil him today, we'll eat him, and then tomorrow we'll take your baby and boil him. And you know what? They did it. They boiled the first woman's baby, ate it. And then the woman, the other woman, refused to let her baby be boiled and eaten the next day. This is what it gets to when you're starving. So Baal was this weather god that promised, I'm going to let your crops grow if you serve me. Their greatest fear was their crops wouldn't grow, and women, their greatest fear for the women were that they would not be able to have babies. How ironic that Baal seemed to fit where God seemed to fail. So let's pour out our offerings. Let's pour out our libations. Let's make... Baal, our God, for when God drops the ball. This is how idolatry works. Our greatest desires, friends, are often our solutions to our greatest fears. Both words, idolatry and desire, they capture this drift. We want and we do not seek our... Listen, we want and we do not seek our satisfaction in Christ trusting him to satisfy our desires, so we seek it elsewhere. You know what that's called in marriage? It's called adultery. Spiritually, it's called idolatry. Those words are synonymous all the way through the Old Testament. And the New Testament churches, many of them wanted status. Many of them wanted favor. Many of them wanted respect. Many of them wanted positions of power. They wanted to be great. They wanted to be respected. They wanted these seats of teachers And John Calvin captures our hearts well. He says this, our hearts, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Listen, check your own heart. Respect. Reputation. Prestige. Sensuality. Beauty. Money. Power. Escape. Fame. Approval. Success. Possessions. Affections. Love. Attention. Security. Control. All of these are potential idolatries that began with most of them being a godly desire. You see, what happens instead of looking to God for the deepest desires of our hearts, we look to God's substitutes, better bodies, bigger homes, more money, higher positions at work, more friends, more control over others, more travel, another hobby, another car, another motorcycle. All of these things bring the God substitute to hearts that are bursting with desire. Friends, this is nothing new with us. In fact, Jeremiah talked about it. He says, my people have committed two sins. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns 
broken cisterns that cannot hold water. These God substitutes cannot satisfy the desires of our hearts, but what yet we cling to them. Ruling desires, which are idolatries, are all about what the Bible calls idolatry. And friends, listen, these produce conflict. Let me put it that simply, if you are in the midst of conflict, if you are in the midst of ongoing arguing, if you're in the midst of a severed relationship, what is ruling in your heart are desires that have gone beyond godly desires. They become ruling desires. They become idols. But James isn't done. Look what the fourth point that we can learn this morning is in verse three. Conflict is all about me. Now, a minister asked a little boy whether he prayed every day. And the little boy said, no, not every day. There are some days I don't want anything. Here's what James says, verse three. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. John McMurray once said the best cure for hedonism is an attempt to practice it. Because when you practice hedonism and you fill your own cisterns with water and you realize after a time that they leak out, then your life is emptier than it was before. Friends, most of the people I see in counseling are in their mid to late 40s. And I've come to the conclusion that that is so because there's only so many things that a person could try to manage these desires in our hearts. There's so many God substitutes that after a while you kind of run out of them. And when you run out of them, you're emptier than you were before. And when you're emptier than you were before, you finally are ready to seek help. God has made you and I with a capacity to desire, but he wants to be the satisfier of our desires. But when we do not trust him, that he can and wants to do this, we pursue other means and our motives are impure. C.S. Lewis was brilliant. He captured this in the screw tape letters. This is a fictional book. I highly recommend you reading it. It's a fictional book about a training relationship from one demon to a lower demon. And the, uh, the, the, the superior demon is training the lower demon how to confound the church. And here's what he writes. Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure, this is a demon speaking, in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is... His, God's invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not, all our research so far has not enabled us to produce even one. All our enemy has produced, God, at times or in ways or in degrees which He has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural. And He quotes this, or I quote Him saying this. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. James writes, when you ask, verse 3, when you ask, the word ask, this, this is the type of asking that a beggar does with a giver, a child with a parent, or a person with God. It carries the idea of pleading and imploring. It's not the asking Though of a trusting child with their father, it's a, it's the asking of a greedy and spoiled child with their parent, demanding the best piece 
on the plate. This is the kind of asking that James says. In James 1.5, we're told to ask God for wisdom and he will give it generously. That's a different word. Here, the idolatrous heart asks, it does not receive from God. See, because God, listen friends, God will not supply our idolatrous desires. And in fact, as James points out, he begins to oppose you and I. When you're in the midst of conflict, when I'm in the midst of conflict, and we are searching for that God substitute, that idol that's going to bring to us the victory in this conflict, God begins to oppose. How comforting is that, marriages? When you're not doing so well and a simmering, brooding anger and resentment is between the two of you, God begins, friends, to oppose you. Why? To bring you to a point of brokenness. Listen to this prayer from John Ward. He was a member of the British Parliament, and this was found among his papers after he died. He wrote this, O Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise that I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquake. As for the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. It's a real prayer. This seems bizarre to you and I until God gives us the insight to see how often this self-absorbed drive inhabits our own prayers. James says, you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Friends, God will not answer that prayer. But he does delight in answering the prayer of one whose desires please him. First John 3 says, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Friends, listen and receive from him anything we ask. Because we obey his commands and do what pleases him, not what pleases me. Do you want to learn how to become peacemakers? I hope you do. I don't think there's anywhere in scripture more clear than this of how to become a peacemaker. And all we're doing so far, friends, all James has done so far, and he will continue to do it in our next sermon, is help you and I become aware of what is happening, this battlefield that's happening in our own hearts, because until you and I are aware of that, there's no solution for it. Otherwise, we go to Christ and say, God, would you please help my wife see where she's wrong? Will you please fix my children and help them to respect me? It is the function of wisdom to teach us and transform us to becoming peacemakers. But to gain this wisdom, friends, James knows that we need to become familiar with our heart's function. Pretty soon he's going to show us how to actually take practical steps. We're going to look at that in a couple weeks. But until then, I'm hoping that you're understanding this. After he is sure, after James is sure we understand the battle that's waging in our hearts because of the desires that are ruling us, then he will turn to practical steps of making peace. You cannot skip the first part. So what do we talk about today? Number one, conflict is all about not getting what I want. Friends, when you're in a conflict this week, 
when you're in an argument this week, when you have that flash of anger and irritation that go through you this week towards somebody else, remember, it starts with this. Conflict is all about not getting what I want. What is it that I wanted? What is it that my heart's craving for? What is it that's ruling me? Conflict is all about warfare. Conflict is all about removing the obstacle to my desire. Conflict is all about my idols. It's all about why I don't trust God and why I go here to get what I don't think God's going to give me. That's what an idol is. And conflict is all about me. It's the absolute essence of self-worship. Isn't that a cheery note to pray on? Friends, hang in there. You've got to master this. And until you master this, you will not become a peacemaker. Then we could turn to how to actually resolve conflict. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for giving us such clear insight from James. Lord, I may have muddied the water, but your original word, your inspired text is clear. Lord, I pray that anybody here that is battling within their own hearts about what was brought to them this morning, Lord, even then, that they would go back to their own hearts and gain wisdom to see what is happening. Lord, let let us become peacemakers. Teach us how to resolve conflict. Teach us how to work through fighting, Lord, to redemptive loving. Lord, prepare our eyes and open them up to be able to see what's ruling and raging in our own hearts. We ask for this wisdom so that we could be people who make peace. In Jesus' name, amen.